Alright everybody, welcome back. In this episode, we're going to talk about Genesis chapter 10. We're going to finish up uh, with Genesis chapter 9, and then we're going to get into Genesis 10 and hopefully touch on Nimrod before the end of it. I'm going to spend quite a good a bit of time in this chapter. Uh, William F. Albright said that the 10th chapter of Genesis stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in, geneal in a genealogical framework. The Table of Nations remains an astonishing accurate document. So here we're going to go over... So anyway, after the flood, we see Noah and his three sons and their families. They're instructed to repopulate the earth. They begin to cultivate it. And the scripture makes it clear that the alcohol got the best of Noah. He became drunk. And then the sad commentary on all this, and we covered it in the last lesson, is that uh, it ends in chapter 9. Noah lived after the flood 350 years. Now, isn't it amazing that there is never another mention of the man in scripture? 350 years he continues after the ark and yet not one word. And so the only thing I could put on it is that the catastrophe that happened to him up there in verse 20, 21, and 22 destroyed the man's testimony. And you know we have to be careful because sin is always out there to trip us up there and to make us fall. And we too can certainly lose our testimony. It doesn't take long. And everyone knows that it takes a lifetime to build a reputation, but how long does it take to destroy it? Moments. And it happens politically, it happens in the business world, and it can certainly happen in Christian circles where someone can build a reputation over the years and years, and it can be destroyed in a moment of time, right? So the human race is going to take another track straight down. In spite of all the knowledge that Noah and his three sons have concerning the will of God, I also want to remind you that uh, these were grown people who went into the ark, and they had complete memory of everything that was before the flood. So you'll remember that the three sons of Noah came out of the ark, and then they, be they will become the parents of three great classifications of people that then overspread the earth. And you might even break it down this way, that out of the line of Shem came all the mostly great, what we would call, religions. And I don't like that word, but out of the line of Shem, we've got Mohammedism, Judaism, and Christianity. And of course, when I say the line of Shem, the primary man is going to be Abraham. So out of the line of Ham, then we have a lot of original discoveries. So dropping in, Genesis 10 verse 1, The three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Japheth, and he was the father of the Indo-European peoples. Those that were stretching from India to the shores of Western Europe, and they are linked by linguistic similarities that often seem invisible to the layman, but are much more obvious to the linguist. Gomer, from this son of Japheth, came the Germanic peoples, from whom came most of the original peoples of Western Europe, and these include the original French, Spanish, and Celtic settlers. Magog, Tubal, and Mesech, these settled in the far north of Europe and became the Russian peoples, Medai. From this son of Japheth came the ancient Medes, and they populated what are now Iran and Iraq. The peoples of India also came from this branch of Japheth's family. Javan, from this son, Japheth came the ancient Greeks, whose seafaring ways are described in Genesis chapter 10, verse 5. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Ripath, 
and Togermah. Ashkenaz, from this son of Gomer came the peoples who settled north of Judea into what we would call the Fertile Crescent. Togarma, from this son of from this son of Gomer came the Armenians. And the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Ketem, Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. The sons of Javan were geographic names that spring from these names, and this chapter abound. Linguists have no trouble seeing the connection between Ketem and Cyprus, Rodanium, the Rhodes, Gomer, and Germany, Meshech, and Moscow, and Tubal, and Tobolsk. So, the historian has not arranged this catalog according to seniority of, of birth. The account begins with the descendants of Japheth, and the line of Ham is given before that of Shem, though he is expressly said to be the youngest or younger son of Noah. And Shem was the elder brother of Japheth, found in Genesis 10.21, the true rendering of that passage. The genealogy of the non-elect was always placed before the chosen line. So, for example, Cain before Seth, in Genesis 4-5, Ishmael before Isaac, Genesis 25, and Esau before Jacob, Genesis 26 and 27. The choice of Shem and the rejection of Ham has already been intimated in Genesis 9-25-27, and this is confirmed in this chapter. We'll come down to Genesis chapter 10, verse 6. The sons of Ham, which were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Out of Ham came the descendants of uh, the peoples who populated Africa in the Far East. Out of Cush, this family divided into two branches early. Some founded Babylon, notably Nimrod came out of this, and others founded Ethiopia. Mizraim, this is another way the Bible refers to Egypt. Put refers to Libya, the region of North Africa west of Canaan. Canaan refers to the peoples who originally settled the land we today think as Israel and its surrounding regions. And then we'll come into verses 7 through 10. The sons of Cush. The sons of Cush were Sheba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, Sabteca, and these sons. And the sons of Ramah were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. We'll pay attention to that later. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Resin between the Nineveh and Kala, that's the principal city. So Cush begot Nimrod, and one son of Cush, worthy of note, is Nimrod. He was a mighty one on the earth, but not in a good way. He ruled over Babel, which was the first organized rebellion of humans against God. The name Nimrod itself means, let us rebel. Like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And so the context of this shows that it's not a compliment of Nimrod. The idea is that Nimrod was an offense before the face of God. And this is not talking about Nimrod's ability to hunt wild game. He was not a hunter of animals. He was a hunter of men, a warrior. And it was through his ability to fight and kill and rule ruthlessly that his kingdom of the Euphrates Valley city-states was consolidated. A Jerusalem Targum says that he was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. For he was a hunter of the sons of men, and he said unto them, Depart from the judgment of the Lord, and adhere to the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore it said, Is Nimrod the strong one, strong in hunting, and in wickedness before the Lord? Gisberg quotes from a Jewish legend. 
The great success that attended all of Nimrod's undertakings produced a sinister effect. Men no longer trusted in God, but rather in their own prowess and ability, an attitude to which Nimrod tried to convert the whole world. Hence, it is likely that Nimrod, having acquired power, used it in tyranny and oppression, and by rapine and violence founded the dominion which was the first distinguished by the name of a kingdom on the face of the earth. How many kingdoms have been founded in the same way, from various ages and nations, from the time to the present? From the Nimrods of the earth, God delivered the world. Get that from Clark. <clears throat> so to go back, in Genesis chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, with the sons of Javan, you had Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. And these were the eyes of the Gentiles, dividing their lands, every one after his tongue, and after their families and the nations. The Isles of Gentiles is a phrase by which the Hebrews described all the countries which were accessible by sea. This is found in Isaiah 11:11, 11, 11, Isaiah 26, and Jeremiah 25:22. <clears throat> and so with Japheth and his descendants, you had Gomer and his sons, the Cimmerians that settled along the uh, Danube and the Rhine. And then you have Ashkenaz, which was linked to Germany, Riphath, which was Josephus will link this to the uh, Paphlogians, Europe, derives from the Ripath language. Togerma uh, was Armenians, Turkey, and Turkestan, as we know them today. Magog and his sons are the Scythians, and it was critical to understanding Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. The descendants of Japheth, numbering 14, were giving first. These were the northern people, remote from Israel, and Gomer represented the Sumerians, thought to be of the same stock of the Scythians. Magog was the land of Gog between Armenia and Cappadocia, Ezekiel 38.2 and 39.6. The name represented Scythian hordes southwest of the Black Sea. Madai were the Medes, or Kurds, and they emerged about the 10th century BC, and it formed a coalition with Persia, Elam, 7th century BC. Tubal as uh, eastern Anatolia, and that's how we would know it today as Turkey. And then you have the Meshech, which was eastern Anatolia, and that was also Turkey as well. Then you have Javan, which is Ionia, and that was Greece, and Tyrus, which was Pelasgians of the Aegean, and that's Etruscans of Italy. Madai represented the Medes east of Assyria and southwest of the Caspian Sea. Javan was a general word for the Hellenic race. The Ionians of western Asia Minor. Tubal and Meshech were northern military states in Anatolia, which is now eastern Turkey. Tyrus may refer to the seafaring Pelasgians of the Aegean coasts. If I mispronounce any of these, just notice that like many of these words are difficult to pronounce, and I'm doing my best here. <laughs> Man, they had a time coming up with some of these names. So out of Japheth, right, we had Gomer, and you had the Ashkenaz which is related to the Scythians, Ripath, and then Togerma, and that's distant northern tribes, which is Armenians today call themselves the House of Togerma. And then you have Javan, and out of that you have Elisha, Elishaha, and that was Alishaya or Cyprus. And then you have Tarshish, and it's possible that this location would be the British Isles. And then you have Kittim, which is Cyprus, and Dodanium. And so from the previous seven descendants of Japheth, seven more were derived. Three northern tribes came from Gomer and were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togerma. The sons of Javan, uh, two geographical names and two tribal names here, all kin to the Greeks. Elisaha and Elishaya 
Alashia, or Cyprus or Tarshish, was a distant coast in Asia Minor. The Kittim also dwelt on Cyprus, and the Dodanim may have lived in Dodona, Greece, unless Dodanim is a textual variant of Rodanim. We reference that with First Chronicles 1-7. And then Genesis 10, 6-8, we went over... Uh, Ham and the sons of Ham immigrated southward, and their settlements were Cush in the south of Arabia, Mizraim in Upper and Lower Egypt, Phut in the west of Africa, and Canaan. It's generally thought that Ham accompanied Mizraim and personally superintended the formation of the settlement as Egypt was called the land of Ham. We'll find that in Psalms 105:23 and verse 27, and Psalm 106, verse 22. Mizraim is a Hebrew dual word for Egypt. And it comprises the power and the upper divisions of that land. The two capitals of Egypt were Memphis and Thebes. Sheba was in southwest Arabia. Queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10 verses 1-13. through 13. Dedan was in northern Arabia. Sheba, or Seba, was in upper Egypt. Havilah, which is sand land, could refer to northern and eastern Arabia on the Persian Gulf or the Ethiopian coast. Sapta was on the western shore of the Persian Gulf, and Ramah and Saptika were in southern Arabia. So some, while all these are extremely difficult to pronounce, some of these people in these ancient kingdoms trace their lineage to Joktan from Shem in Genesis 10:29. So there is a mixing in the settlement. The descendants of Ham form the eastern and southern peoples of Mesopotamia. The Cushites, the descendants of Cush, settled in South Arabia and in present-day southern Egypt, Sudan, and northern Ethiopia. They came mingled in with the Semitic tribes dwelling in the same region, hence there is a repetition of some of the names in other lines. So the final Hamite line that was significant for Israel was the Canaanite group. And once again, the listing employs Begat, Yalad, to list the cities and the tribes of people living in the promised land. Sidon was the predominant Phoenician city. Hittites, or Hoet or Heth, is problematic, but it may refer to the pocket of Hittites from the early movement of tribes. The Jebusites dwelt in Jerusalem, and Amorite was a general reference to western Semites, but here points to a smaller ethnic group in a mixed population of Canaan. The other seven Canaanite tribal names are less problematic. They were the tribes that settled in Lebanon, Hamath, or Hamath on the Orontes River, and all through the land. Their listing is significant after the passage pronouncing the curse on Canaan, which happened in Genesis 9, verses 25 through 27. We covered that in the previous lesson. Among the Hamites are found not just in all the Canaanite people, but Israel's other great enemies, Egypt, Mizraim, Babylon, and Assyria. And then we covered Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. And his name means rebel. He was the first world dictator, and he was the founder of Babylon and Nineveh. And so inserted in the table of nations is the story of Nimrod. So while we have all this history of the origins of the nations of people, and they all come and it all numbers out to seventy total. This is the first begot, was the father of section, and it forms a major stylistic break from the tribal names preceding it. So attempts to identify or date Nimrod have proven unsuccessful because his name seems to be connected with the verb to rebel, or marad in the Hebrew. Tradition has identified him with tyrannical power. 
He was the founder of the earliest imperial world powers in Babylon and Assyria. And so this table of nations simply presents him as a mighty hunter, a hunter of men. And it was a trait found commonly in Assyrian kings. He was a brutal guy. He was the founder of uh, several powerful cities. And the centers he established became major, major enemies of Israel. So Alexander Hislop, in his book, The Two Babylons, gives the background of how Nimrod was responsible for the Tower of Babel. It was he who attempted to bring together the human race after the flood in an effort to get them united into a nation of which he would uh, become a great world ruler. Does that sound familiar? He was the rebel the founder of Abel and the hunter of the souls of men. He was a lawless one and he was a shadow or a type, typos would be the original translation, of the last world ruler, the Antichrist who is yet to appear. So the first great civilization therefore came out of the sons of Ham. So Genesis 10 verse 11 and 12. So out of the land went forth Asher and built Nineveh and the city of Rehoboth and Kelab, and Resin between Nineveh and Kelah, and the same is a great city. So the city of Babel becomes the city of Babylon. All throughout scripture you have stories of two cities, Jerusalem as God's city and Babylon as man's city or Satan's city. So the streets of the city of Nineveh were known as early as 2800 BC as the center of powerful Assyrian kingdom, which attained its height under Sennacherib, Esarhaddon, and Ashurbanipal. It was situated on the Tigris River, about 250 miles from the city of Babylon, and it was against this stronghold that Jonah and Nahum directed their prophecies. So you'll remember that Nineveh was one of the greatest cities of the ancients, Uh, And who built it? It was the Hamatic people out of the same beginners of the city of Babel. And then also some other cities. And so in Genesis chapter 10 verses 13 through 18 we have, And Mizraim begot Ludim, and Anamim, and Lahabim, and Naphethim, and Pathrusim. And this has to be comical listening to all this. And Kasluhim, Kasluhim out of whom uh, came Philistim and Kephrtim, and Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Jerusite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Sinite, and the Arvidite, and the Zamorite, and the Hamathite. And afterward, there were the families of the Canaanite spread abroad. You can imagine how difficult it was to talk to each other when you had names this difficult. So, as boring as it may appear, looking back on it, this sets the foundation of the history of the world. It's merely history here. and But it gives us a clue out as where the origin of everybody came from. And if we can understand uh, truth, then we can sift you know, fact from fiction when we see it out there. Knowing the truth from the word of God allows you to identify a fraud, right? When they when they try to find a counterfeit dollar bill, they study the original. They don't study counterfeits. They look at the original and all the attributes it has in order to spot a counterfeit. And the world is full of counterfeit. So in order to be able to spot what is non-truth, you have to look at truth. You have to study it diligently. And then something that doesn't fit that bill, right, pun intended, you'll be able to spot a fake immediately because you know exactly what the original looks like. And some can come very close. 
And something we have to realize is that Satan is a master counterfeiter. Okay, we like to think of him as a, you know, an ugly demon with big horns and, you know, he's evil and all that. But the scripture paints that he's a very beautiful, he was God's, you know, it was a beautiful cherub angel. He's very powerful. He's capable of doing uh, wonders and miracles. He could do uh, what would be perceivably good thing as well as bad. But he always counterfeits. You'll remember later uh, with in the book of Exodus, Moses does a serpent, and then Satan's ministers, right, these other guys, they also mimic or counterfeit Moses, you know, turning the rod into a serpent. But what happens? God is more powerful. So Satan can come really close to the appearances, but he can't quite become exact. He'll never be more powerful than God. Remember, Satan even said it in his heart that he wants to be like God. He's even admitted, you know, his subservience even under God. He wants to, he aspires to be claimed as God, but even he himself says like God. You know, there's a big difference there. So understand, there's a lot of false religion, and I remember I told you that religion is man's attempt to reconcile himself before God. It's his fig leaves. It's putting yourself under these rules and regulations that I gotta do this, I gotta do this to earn my way. Or, you know, to gain favor before God. But, I mean, that would be such an unfair advantage when God has laid it out the same for everyone. And it's a perfect God. Socrates had a very compelling statement that he made. And he said, It may be that a just God can forgive sinners, but I don't see how. And what he's speaking of is that when you have a God that is perfect, right? He's absolutely sinless. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's immutable. For him to say, okay, well now I'll tolerate a little bit of sin, it violates his very character of perfection. You understand? He's no longer perfect at that point. So he couldn't violate his character with man. So what did he do? He had to purchase. He had to pay us. And how did he do that? Jesus Christ had to come. It was the flip side of Adam. Adam was a direct creation of God, was in a beautiful garden, and then fell to Satan's temptation and handed over the keys of dominion to Satan. And that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what's happening in the end of Revelation when he pulls out the scroll of the seven seals. It's written on the back, which is a mortgage, right? It was like a mortgage contract. And the only one that's able to do that, it had to come from a human, right? And so what Jesus did is that he didn't have the sin blood, which runs through the Father, right? So that's where the virgin birth is important. He was through the Holy Spirit, right? You had the virgin birth of Mary. And so him, not being in a, you know, very, instead of a perfect environment that Adam had, he had a very humble birth. He was disgraced. He was beaten. He was marauded. And just like we see with the uh, ordinances of sacrifice, he was made, he was perfection in a human body and was made sin for us. And then out of that was able to purchase, defeat death on behalf of mankind, right? People are like, well, if you, how can he just die and come back? The, the, there's a purchasing thing. There's a transaction being made there, okay? God can do whatever he wants, and he did. It was a part of the plan. It was a great victory. It was not a loss. It was a big victory, he purchased. It was a transaction. And that's what's happening in the back. I know I'm derailing here, but I just want to go on a tangent. Well, that's what's happening in the book of Revelation is that what he's doing, right? When John said, I looked there on and nobody was worthy to open the seal. And I wept convulsively 
because he realized that no man, you know, above or below or anywhere was worthy to cash in to get through this seal, to get through these seven seals to take this. But it goes on and says, but, you know, one of the elders pulls him aside and says, you know, look, behold, you know, the Lamb of God as it had been slain. And it had to be a man who did the exact opposite of what Adam did in the garden. And he was able to purchase or redeem that mortgage, if you will. And a mortgage means it's a death death contract. And so that's exactly what he's doing through his shed blood. He did the exact opposite of what Adam did in the garden, and he paid for it. And then that's what he's cashed in on in the end. That's derailing, but sometimes you just go on these little tangents, and it's important to kind of realize the, the scheme of things. So anyway, coming back to Genesis. The Philistines originally came out of Egypt, Mizraim, and they went on to Cyprus in the land of the Philistines. So the name Philistine comes from the Romans, who were fed up and frustrated by the revolts of Bar Koba in approximately 140 AD. And the Roman Emperor Hadrian realized that they could not rule Jerusalem as long as there was a Jewish presence. So he leveled the city of Jerusalem and he built a Roman city on top of it and called Aelia Capitonia. And there was a death penalty initiated for any Jew caught in Jerusalem. They named the entire region after the Philistines, who were Israel's enemies, as an attempt to deny any Jewish presence there. The word Philistine in Latin was Palestina, and the word Palestine was designed to deny Israel's place in the land. Anytime you hear the word Palestine, it is a label of Israel's enemies. Remember that all through scripture. So the Sinites moved to what we would know today as China. The Chinese are a derivative of Canaan, Sidon, or Zidon, moved to the north coast and became the Phoenicians, and the capital of the Amorites was Jericho. Heth was the ancestor of the Hittites, and whose great empire held sway from 1600 to 1700 BC. The principal cities of the Hittites and the Karshemesh on the Euphrates and the Kadesh on the Orontes. The principal cities of the Hittites were the Karshemish and the Euphrates or the Kadesh on the Orontes. These people settled in the vicinity of Hebron and they witnessed Abraham's purchase of the cave of uh, Machpelah from Ephron in chapter 23 verses 8 through 10. Esau married into this tribe and the Hittites found their way into the Assyrian and Egyptian inscriptions. Archaeologists have found valuable remains of civilization of that powerful empire. So, Genesis chapter 10, verses 19 through 20. I know we're going through a lot of history, but I think it's very important. And so, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, and thou comest from Gerar and Gaza, and thou goest unto Sodom and Gomorrah and Adama. That'll sound familiar, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Adama and Zelbim, and even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham after their families, after their tongues, and their countries, and in their nations. So, out of Ham, we have the upper and lower Egypt. Cush, we have Ethiopia. Uh, Fut, we have in Ethiopia, northern Africa, and Canaan. Went to Gaza, Sodom, and Gomorrah. And that'll come into play later, obviously. Shem, if anybody knows anything, they all know about Sodom and Gomorrah. And <laughs> I have to make the Billy Graham mention here. Billy Graham said if uh, God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize for Sodom and Gomorrah. And that always sticks out to me every time I see it. Talking about how the depravity of a society currently. So Shem, you had Asher, Arphaxad, which was uh, Selah, Eber, and Peleg, earth divided. You have Lud, and then Aram, and that was the general division of the earth. The countries of Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Syria fell to his descendants. So coming on down to verse 21 24. 
unto Shem also, the father of the children of Eber, and the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born, the children of Shem, Elam, and Asher, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram, the children of Aram, Luz, and Hul, and Gether, and Mash, and Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. Man, that's a mouthful. And so, the children of Eber comprise many different groups among the sons of Shem. The name Eber has been associated with the word Hebrew. And it was the name by which the Israelites were known by other people. They were the ones who possessed the knowledge of the true God. The term Hebrew is racial, while Israelite is national. In uh, the later days, these words were used as synonyms. The Elamites were descendants of Shem's first son, Elam. They dwelt in the highlands of Babylonia. Asher was the name of the region and people of Assyria, where Nimrod, a Hamite, had founded several cities. Arphaxed uh, resided northeast of Nineveh. Lud was the uh, Ledba of the Assyrians. Perhaps Lud was often a shortened form of Luda, and possibly another name for Lydia, which is now western Turkey. Aram was an ancestor of the Armenian, uh, Aramean tribes on the steppes of the Mesopotamia. His descendants, in verse 23, are not really well known. All right, so verse 25 through 29... And unto Ebert were born two sons, and the name of one was Peleg. For in his days was the earth divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begot Almadad, and Shalef, and Hazarmavath, and Jerah, and Hadoram, and Uzal, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimel, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. And these were the sons of Joktan. And they got busy. And Peleg means division. Ophir was famed for its fine gold, and Solomon sent his men along with Hiram's to extract it and transport it to Palestine. In addition to gold, they found precious metals and gems in great abundance. Soon, Solomon's kingdom rivaled all the surrounding lands and wealth. So Ophir was probably a seaport on the coast of Arabia. It had been located as far away as the mouth of the Indus, and much of the gold overlay of the Temple of Solomon came from Ophir. All right, verse 30 through 32. And their dwelling was from Mesha, and thou goest unto Shephar, and a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem, after their families, after their tongues and their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the son of Noah, after their generations and their nations. And by these were the nations divided in the earth after the flood. Right? So clear, no stone unturned. Here we go. The Holy Spirit gives it right to us. So here is a Colophon-type ending, reminding the readers that all families came from Noah. But some were of special interest for the nation Israel. Ethnology makes it evident that neither the sons of Japheth nor the sons of Ham ever comprised what some people might call the Lost Ten Tribes of Israel which is nonsense. <clears throat> and I'm not going to get into that. I'll, cut a, I'll cover the Lost Ten Tribes theory later, but it's utter nonsense. The Table of Nations, there's no Lost Ten Tribes. The Table of Nations, as a review here, yet again, we have 70 nations from Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And you have 70 families which entered Egypt in Genesis 46, verse 10. And the boundaries were set in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 7 and 8. These two are deliberately linked bounds of nations set right so these people had separated went to their areas and set nations so the framework here the sons of bene occurs 12 times in the verses through 2 through 4 6 7 20 23 29 31 and 32 yalad means he begot and is mentioned in verses 8 13 15 21 25 and 26 
Canaan's descendants are emphasized in verses 15 through 18, and the boundaries of promised land are mentioned in verse 19. The basic framework of the table of nations that we went over here is the bene, the sons of, motif. Other times, however, the chapter uses yalad, he begot, which seems to suggest that these were interpretations given to the bene table. The yalad sections in line with the idea of the toldot trace a significant development of pa- of personages within the structure of the Bible, right? The NIV will render the verb yalad as was the father of, as in verse 8, 13, 15, 26, was the ancestor of, in verse 21, and were born into in verse 25. So of special note are verses 15 through 19, and that's Canaan's descendants are traced, and even the boundaries of the promised land are given. So the writer of the table of nations was apparently using an ancient table to clarify which of Noah's descendants would experience blessing and which ones would experience cursing. Most of the Yalad, he begot sections pertain to the Canaanites or the Hamites, the tribes close to Israel, to see which neighbors would face blessing and which ones cursing. Israel need only consult this table. Wars and conflicts inevitably result from this arrangement. And man, what a chapter. So out of out of that, we get where everything came from. And to kind of capitalize, I wanted to go back. I said I would touch on Nimrod. Uh, we want to point out that Every false religion that has ever been or now or will come and they will be coming, they have their roots in the Tower of Babel, and you can't escape it. So if you'll turn with me all the way to the back of the book of Revelation, we haven't left Babel behind, not by any stretch of the imagination, because if you come back to the book of Revelation, in chapter 17, we're dealing with a false worldwide religion, and it's going to come on the scene in the final seven years of what uh, we would call the final seven years of Daniel's prophecy, the last three and a half years being the tribulation. People like to refer to the whole seven years being the tribulation, but it's really that last three and a half that is the tribulation period. <clears throat> so in Revelation chapter 17, you come all the way down to verse 4, and this, of course, is symbolic Im- imagery. But it's certainly a literal truth where John sees this woman. It's a religious system worldwide. And so Revelation 17, verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Now what does that speak of? Tremendous wealth. Having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And all you have to do is just look at some of the religions in the world today, and the cults and the false teachers, and some of these people on television, and um, this one fellow draws in like a million dollars a day from his television ministry, and I mean, it's just mind-boggling. And they're not even teaching the word. So you take some of the great religions of the world, and their wealth tonight is unbelievable. And they're all going to come together, and they're all going to amalgamate all this wealth. And here's what John is seeing pictured then, right? This woman, this religious system with tremendous wealth, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of, oh, not religious things, but what? Or not even good things, but uh, abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. Now, I maintain it's not a physical fornication. It is spiritual. It's adulterating spiritual things, which, of course, God hates shocker. So, Revelation 17, verse 5, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. 
So clear back here in Revelation, we haven't left Babylon behind, not by any means, but here she comes on again, and and this great world religious system that's coming on the scene, and uh, I tell you what, it's it's practically already here, it's growing by leaps and bounds, what we call the New Age movement, and this tolerance, and I warn people constantly that it's creeping into the churches, and it sounds so good, but it's Babylon. It's Babel, and as we come back to Genesis, it's where it all started, the Tower of Babel. It was this one world and it was a bunch of tolerance and it was a direct defiance of god right so genesis 11:4 and they said go to let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven and let us make a name now here's as far as we got before we went to revelation lest we be what's the word scattered abroad from the face of the whole earth so we'll finish here for now and then next lesson we'll go back and we'll start to cover genesis 11 in greater detail and that will be covering the tower of babel this one world religious system this first world dictator and this is going to be a type or a typos as scripture points out and it's pointing to things to come right you're going to see types all through scripture and it's like little models and you find it in the structure of the story and it's like little models of things that you should look out for and be like hey Pay attention to this because you, what you'll see in a smaller scale in Genesis will be in a global scale in, in the back of the book in Revelation. You know what I mean? So thank you for joining me. We'll pick up in our next lesson. Thanks.